Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I'm really excited to welcome my friend Jillian Strauss to leave your mark. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is so nice to be here. Oh my God. So we have quite an episode prepared today. And when I say prepared, we have zero prep done, but we know each other and we know what we're aiming to achieve. Jillian is the founder and principal of Strauss Strategic Communications. She is a media consultant, presentation trainer, Speechwriter for CEOs of the world's largest e-commerce companies, executives of Fortune 500 companies, founders of startups, professional athletes, supermodels, A-list celebrities, and best-selling authors. And she advises clients across the country on all aspects of public speaking, including message development for on-camera and print interviews, as well as off-air presentations like TED Talks or regular speeches at corporate conferences. And she also teaches the secrets to getting media coverage. Jillian is a 20-year veteran of the media industry, and she's one of the few professionals in the business who's actually worked on both sides of the camera because she is an author as well. And she spent over a decade working as a producer on The Oprah Winfrey Show. So she brings unmatched expertise to this discussion. We're really going to focus this conversation on how to be a strategic communicator, whether you're presenting on Zoom, presenting in a conference room, going on stage, going on television, or even prepping for an interview. So fun story, Jillian, I'm going to say how we met. So back in 2012, I was at DKMY and we were doing a partnership with Adrian Grenier from Entourage for the launch of the Pure DKMY fragrance. Estee Lauder was the licensee of DKNY at the time. I think they still are. And they called me as the head of PR and they said, we need someone to go on the Today Show with Adrienne to present this fragrance and we think you should do it. And I was like, "Um, I have zero television experience. So thanks so much. And they were like, no, really, we really need you to do this. Like, you need to. We have this amazing trainer named Jillian Strauss. And she's going to prepare you in less than 24 hours to go on a national morning show with an A-list celebrity. No pressure at all. So Jillian came over and literally within two hours pulled out the sound bites that I needed to learn and get across in the, no joke, three seconds that he gave me to speak. I mean, Jillian, did he give me like a minute to speak? 
no time and you nailed it. Thank you. I mean, you don't have to say that, but I did do a pretty good job, I have to say. (laughs) But completely because of your prep. So Jilly and I have worked together since then. She has been a confidant on so many different things, but she really is sort of a Jill of all trades because it's really not just the delivery of the communication, but also the messaging points. And I worked with her on my book organization, and she's just someone who has an incredible eye and ear for language and the way that you present yourself. So without further ado, Jillian, you're from California. Just quick segue. What did you even major in? You went to Northwestern, right? I went to Northwestern, go Wildcats. I'm from LA, yes. So making the move to the Windy City, that was a big life change. But there was an amazing journalism program. And then well, my master's in communication, but that allowed me to do work in broadcast. And that's when I really decided that I wanted to be on broadcast, behind the scenes. So that was sort of the beginning of what I'm doing now. Was Oprah your first job out of college? My first job out of college was working for ABC News on the OJ Simpson trial, believe it or not. I feel (laughs) like I'm totally dating myself. But you know, that first job, you're like, oh my God, I went to this great journalism school how come I'm like logging tape in a basement? And that's when I really learned that journalism is the kind of job where you have to be ready to roll up your sleeves and do what's ever thrown at you. And also for, I know you have so many listeners that are trying to get their dream job and you learn that that dream job that you're so excited to get sometimes means you're logging tape or steaming some celebrities clothes in a green woman, which I know you did. And I did when I worked at Oprah or getting bagels for somebody that when you get started in your dream job, you do anything that comes your way. You are low man, or in this case, low woman on totem pole. How'd you even get the job at ABC News? Because that's a good place to start. I was living in LA where I'm from, staying, you know, with my parents and really wanting to be out on my own. And this opportunity came my way. Someone I think I did an internship when I was in college said they needed, you know, PAs to do whatever needs to be done. And from the minute that car chase happened with OJ on the 405, I was on that trial. So I have encyclopedic knowledge of (laughs) that trial. That's amazing. So from there, did you go to Oprah? So from there, I was actually dying to go back to Chicago because I loved it so much having spent time there. And a lot of my friends obviously stayed in Chicago after college and, you know, didn't want to live under my parents' roof anymore. And I applied for the job there. And of course, like most people, I loved Oprah and I really was excited to work for such an inspiring woman. And that was a really great experience too. learning that whatever needed to be done, that I would be the person to do it. And I know you as well have had so many jobs where you're just thrown into a situation and you have to sink or swim. And that was that kind of opportunity. And thankfully, it was a great experience and it went well, but not without a lot of hard work. What was the job called and what did you do all day? I was a production assistant, so lowest person on the totem pole. And so anything that needed to be done from making copies to helping celebrities in the green room. And, you know, I'm talking all those people from Madonna to John Travolta, 
John F. Kennedy Jr., all of those people I was lucky enough to interface with, obviously Oprah herself, but whatever needs those people had right before they went on air and prepping them before they went on the air, sometimes I would go out in the field and interview people one-on-one. So here I was this young 20-something and I would go interview coal miners in Somerset, Pennsylvania, and actually went into a coal mine. So I had to learn that ability to connect with people with all kinds of jobs, whether they were from the celebrity world or just regular everyday people. And that was such a great education for me because it really taught me and laid the groundwork for what I do today, that everything you do in communication is about connection. So whether you're connecting with a celebrity or you're connecting with a coal miner, you have to find some human way to build that bond with the tool of communication. And that's what really drew me to trying to help other people gain communication skills to have whatever message they wanted to get out there in the world land in a powerful, effective way. So obviously you stayed there more than a decade. You got promoted along the way. way Yes. I started very young and then I rose through the ranks and I eventually really wanted to move to New York and write a book, which was a really good experience for me because when I promoted the book, I finally went from behind the scenes to the person who had to go on television, which was horrifying for someone like me that was always telling other people what to do, what to say, how to say it, how to look, what to wear. And it really was exactly what I needed because it showed me the other side of it. And it made me face my own fear of public speaking, which is why I think I was always behind the scenes to begin with. So interesting. Tell everyone what your book was about. So my book was called The Unhooked Generation, The Truth About Why We're Still Single. And the reason why I wrote that book is because I was 30-something living in Chicago. I had a great job. I had a really good group of girlfriends. And yet I could never seem to find the right romantic partner. And I came from a family of very happily married parents. And I looked around me and I had many friends in the same situation. There seemed to be a common thread that we were all in this generation. We all wanted to find lasting love. We were all successful professionals. And every other area of our life seemed to be working, but not being able to find that romantic partner and sustain commitment. So I thought to myself, this isn't specific to me. There's something going on with my generation. And When I wrote the book, I really came to the conclusion after interviewing 100 single people across the country in major cities that there were these things that I called the seven evil influences that got in the way of us finding love from being a post-internet generation, coming from a, it's all about me culture, like the way we order our Starbucks coffee with a million specifications. We think we can have a checklist for a mate and find them in the same way, you know, on online or eHarmony and coming from a post-divorce generation. So in other words, we have all these cultural generational factors working against us 
that make us afraid to commit. Things our parents never had to deal with. So interesting. Is that book still available? It's still available. You can get it, you know, on Amazon. You can get the hard copy or you can also get, you know, the soft copy, which has actually a checklist on the front cover. And what's kind of funny is the week that I signed the contract is the week that I met my future husband. (laughs) Of course it is. And he started as an interview subject. He was single and I was going, you know, I was going to interview him for the book. That's how you met? That is how we met. I don't think I knew this. It would actually happen. It's a funny story. I was at a restaurant with a friend of mine and he was seated next to me and he was actually on a date with somebody else. And he sort of stumbled into our conversation because it was at Leal for New Yorkers who were listening. Um, Anthony Bourdain, sadly, one of his wonderful restaurants. And the tables were so close to each other that you could sort of hear each other's conversation. So true. So yes, so tight. Oh, I miss that place. <laughs> so um, the person at the other table ended up becoming my husband. So when I met him, I was writing this book and I had all that skepticism that we all had as 30 somethings. So, you know, I was writing this book all about like learning to relax the checklist, of course, which I had. And in some ways, my now husband seemed like a good match. But in other ways, he didn't meet my checklist and I didn't meet his checklist. So I had to challenge those beliefs I was writing about in my real life relationship. And obviously, I must have learned something along the way because we've been married 13 years now. Oh, and they have two beautiful, beautiful girls. So nice. Okay. We digress, but I thought that was a really cute story and I think will resonate with a lot of people. So let's now really dig into the tactics because this is really your sweet spot. And I think we should start with your five rules for how to be a great communicator or your five tips. Yes, definitely. Here are five secrets you know, to being a great communicator. And it starts with number one, showing your human side. You always want to show your human side, whether you're giving a toast at a wedding, that's more obvious, show your human side. But even with business communication, showing your human side can really connect somebody to you and allow you to persuade them or influence them. Because when people like the messenger, they listen to the message. The second is tell stories. I'm sure that other people have heard that before, that, you know, a story can be much more impactful than, say, a PowerPoint presentation or statistics or facts that they're just not that memorable after you give a speech or even have an interview. It's a story that will be the one thing that somebody will remember from their time with you. So always tell stories whenever possible. Number three, let the facts speak for themselves. And what I mean by that is you don't want to tell people what to think or how they should think. You don't want to twist or sugarcoat the facts. I think we saw, you know, some of that this year in the news of trying to sort of manipulate the facts. Facts do speak for themselves. So yes, we have all been in certain situations where There are certain facts you may want to highlight to reinforce your point. That's fine. But what I'm saying is don't try to twist the facts. And if you have to give factual information that is negative information, maybe you're laying off people at your company, it's better to be 
straightforward about it. You can express your regret and express your emotion about it and even show your human side when having to relay those negative facts. But you have to let the facts speak for themselves. Number four is to send a clear, concise, and consistent message, either in an interview or when you're giving a presentation or a speech. What I mean by that is you need to say things in more than one way to get your point across. They say that people don't act on something you tell them until they hear it three different ways. So for example, when I was promoting my book, for those people who are promoting different things in their life, people don't really go and buy a book until they hear about it three different times, right? So maybe they heard about it, they saw me on the Today Show, and then maybe they read an article about it in the New York Times. And it's by the third time someone hears something, they actually get it and they act on it. So we have to have clear, consistent messages and concise messages that we repeat. And finally, whenever you make a speech or you have an interview, you want to make it about your audience and not about yourself. So maybe you're pitching something to a company. Maybe you're pitching investors. You really need to do homework on who is in the room. Maybe I I work with a lot of women-owned businesses, and often they're going to pitch some venture capitalists, and they're men in the room, and they have to make men understand this product that is for women, whether it's beauty or fashion. So You have to research those people in the room and think about how do I have to adjust the same speech I've been giving to all these different people in a way these people will hear it. I want to ask a follow-up question to the show Your Human Side because I want to make sure people understand where the line is drawn for how much human side they're supposed to show because I think that is an area where people can really overdo it and TMI it. So what's a great example of showing your human side and what's something that is too much? That's such a good question. I think what people assume when I say show your human side, they think, oh, I can just let it all hang out. That is not what I mean. And I think in a Zoom era, some people are doing that, right? So They have too many things going on in the background that show that, you know, they're not organized. But I think a good example of it is if you're on a Zoom presentation and you're trying to talk about the challenge of being a working mother in the pandemic, if you've got a laundry basket behind you and it's stacked up and it's a mess, that perfectly demonstrates you using your human side to make a larger point about, oh my God, look how chaotic my life is. But if you're talking about the company's earnings and you're on a Zoom call, I don't want to see your messy laundry basket behind you. So show your human side in a way that shows the larger message that you're trying to convey. Whenever you are public speaking, you have to ask yourself, what is my agenda? Why am I giving this interview or this speech? Recently, Oprah sat down and did an interview with Harry and Meghan. Obviously, many, many people watched that. And I thought Oprah did an amazing job in the interview. But the question I kept asking myself is, what is their agenda? Why are they doing this interview? 
And I'm not sure if they had one specific agenda or not. But my advice to them, if I were advising them before that interview is, what is your goal? Why are you doing this interview? And then everything that you do in that interview should serve that purpose. So maybe they didn't intend to ruffle as many feathers as they did in the royal family. That's something you would definitely have to ask yourself before you do that interview is, am I going to ruffle feathers? You really have to very much have an intention when you go into an interview or you're public speaking, especially when you're doing it with that large of an audience. Yeah, that's not a small stakes interview. But I just want to go back to the laundry basket example, which I think is a great one. And I want to define what level of person you think from a seniority perspective that plays well with. Because when I listen to you, I think, yeah, if you see your big boss showing you that they haven't even had a chance to fold that laundry basket, that to me plays well because it's seeing someone who's normally in complete control and authority showing a side that is real. Like they're getting home and they do, or they're home already, but they have so much work, they don't have time to actually fold the laundry. But if you're maybe more junior on a team, I don't know if it plays the same way. Exactly. But that goes to, you talk about it all the time, your branding, the way you're branding yourself, right? So I've always noticed on your Instagram, you post very personal things about yourself. Obviously, you have a fashion background. Sometimes you're showing a fabulous outfit you're wearing. For me, that feels so personal. I wouldn't post that because that's not on brand for me. I'm putting myself out there as a public speaking expert to CEOs, to other entrepreneurs. So that isn't consistent with my personal brand, but it is consistent with your personal brand. So that is what you have to ask yourself is, am I forwarding my agenda with my Zoom background, the way that I look, the way that I'm dressed? Mm -hmm. In fact, when I tell people to go on TV, if somebody is going on television as an expert, whether it's an expert who wrote a book or a professor, I might tell them to dress one way. If they're going on as a child psychologist, I would say, be more human, more friendly, don't wear a suit. So it really has to be consistent with who you're showing up as that day, right? You wear one thing. If you're a mother, you wear one thing to pick your daughter up at school. That might not be the same thing that you're going to wear in a boardroom. Right. So this is a great segue for interviews. You know, obviously they're mostly on Zoom right now, but how do you think candidates should dress for an interview? I mean, suits feel so 20 years ago. Do people still wear suits outside of like finance jobs? What do you think as far as presenting? Again, it's really important the space that you're in. If you are in a more traditional, like finance, yeah, you probably would want to wear a blazer, you know? And by the way, for those of us who get self-conscious on camera about our size or our shape, I really do recommend that you wear a blazer. You can't go wrong. It doesn't have to be stiff. You could wear 
a black blazer with a red blouse underneath. You don't want to have any kind of pattern on it. You want to keep it simple. But you can't really go wrong with a well-fitting blazer. If you're in a job like fashion or you're in something less corporate, yeah, you can wear a dress, you can wear a blouse, you know, that's fine. But I think in the Zoom world, we should be more concerned about being overly casual than the reverse. Let's talk about your hatred of prints on television, on camera. (laughs) You really don't like them. Well, only because, listen, I love prints. I love them in real life. I have a ton of clothes with prints. But when you're on television, if you have small prints, they can do something which is called moire, which means it has the appearance of moving. So if you're wearing like a really small houndstooth jacket um, or something with checks, something like that, it will actually look like your shirt has movement to it. And that will be so distracting. And I would imagine this similar thing could happen on Zoom. So so crazy. It's not that all prints are bad. Larger prints are safer. But if you don't have time to sort of test your Zoom camera, take a look, have somebody on the other side of the camera, you're better off with going with a solid and a jewel tone. I am a New Yorker. I love to wear black. But when I go on a Zoom or I go on television, I wear a color because it's so flat. We have usually uninteresting backgrounds on Zoom. You're not as interactive on Zoom as you would be in person. So at least wearing a color kind of lightens things up, makes you sort of less flat. Interesting. And as far as talking with your hands or the body language of presenting either in person or on camera, what do you recommend? I mean, I notice you do it and I do it too. And I advise people to use their hands. I don't want to watch a robot. The way you get people excited about something is through your passion. Passion is contagious when it comes to public speaking. And we can only see your passion on a Zoom through your hands, right? You can't walk toward me. You can't stand up and give us the superwoman pose. But I can see your hands on a Zoom. And of course, your face should be expressive as well. It's a really good point. Let's talk about your three C's. The three C's, my three rules to write communication are one, you have to captivate your audience. And that means within the first 10 seconds, you have to grab their attention. How do you do it? Maybe you ask a question. Maybe you use something that you know or someone you know that you have in common. But there's some way of reaching out, whether it's over Zoom or in person, and making them pay attention to what you're saying. That is Captivate. Second is you have to be concise. Everybody has to have an elevator pitch ready. And an elevator pitch is your concise way to explain what you do or whatever it is that you're promoting. Because people don't want a long five-minute story. What do you do? They want to know in one sentence, what you do, who you are. Just like on Instagram, you have one line to explain in a way that you're branding yourself. You have to be able to do that in speech as well. And the last C is connect. 
you have to find a way to connect with that audience. And that goes back to showing your human side or telling stories to make them empathic to you, interested in what you want to say. Such great advice. So let's talk about specifically presenting a deck because I know you have very strong opinions about deck presentations. So why don't you share them with us? Yes. Almost every person, every executive I've ever worked with, when I show up to work with them, they say, okay, you're going to help me with my deck. And I say, (laughs) no, we're going to help you give an amazing presentation. If you have a deck, let's take a look. But you are not going through your deck. That is not your presentation. You are not reading me your deck. I can read a deck myself. I don't need you to stand there and read it to me. There's nothing more boring. So when I say captivate someone, I don't care how good that first slide is. That is not going to captivate them. So great that you have a deck. So happy for you. But that does not suffice as a presentation. I always say that a deck is like a supporting actor in a play or a prop in a play. It is not your storyline. So you should have a presentation that captivates people at the very beginning, that is concise, and that finds a way to connect throughout the presentation, whether it's three minutes or 45 minutes, to connect you to the person you're presenting to for the whole time. It's not going to just be slides. Yeah. I'll share my tip that I personally find works very well for me. So you build out your deck and it's chock full of info and you have title pages. So essentially what I present will only be my title pages and the in-between slides. So think of it as like a sandwich, right? So like in between the bread, you know, the lettuce, tomatoes, turkey, et cetera, That is what I deliver in story form versus having it bullet pointed. So I use the title pages to guide me so the progression makes sense and I know what points I have to hit. And then I just have all the other information in my presenter's view, but I know it so well that I don't even need to look at it because once I see the title, it prompts me and I know exactly what I'm going to say. Well, I don't want to take credit for teaching you that, (laughs) but it may have been something that I shared with you long ago because one of the tips that I give everyone is you never want to sound scripted. You never want to give a speech that is just something that you're reading. Rather, you want to have, like you're suggesting with slides, like an index card with the main bullets of your speech. Or if you're going on TV, I always tell people, have three points. People can't remember more than three points. So you do, you use your PowerPoint or you use your index card as a guide so that you sound engaged. Remember, if connection is the goal, you're not going to get it by looking down at an index card or staring at your slide. You're going to get it through eye contact and smiling. And you can't read a piece of paper while you're doing that. So the point is you have to do your homework, make your notes, be familiar with them. But in that moment, you deliver it and it doesn't get delivered the same way every time. I think that's a really great point because I do think people think they need to memorize it. And if you memorize it, I can promise you that if you forget one word, it's going to freak you out beyond 
and then you're not going to be able to deliver the rest of it. A hundred percent. The way we really connect with our audience is through authenticity, right? Authenticity and vulnerability. And if you sound too rehearsed and memorized, you're not going to come across as authentic. I 100% agree. And the other thing I will add, because we are still, you know, presenting on Zoom, if you are presenting something important, I would recommend also that you have someone else share their screen with your presentation so that you can keep eye contact with your audience. Because we all know that if you're the presenter, you're looking at, you can't see anyone, which is so silly, but that's the technology we have. So I think you absolutely need to see the person that you're speaking to. A hundred percent. You have to, and you shouldn't be so focused again on your deck or your slides, your PowerPoint. You should try to hand that off to somebody else so you can focus on sounding authentic, using your hands, making eye contact. And people, by the way, don't want to listen to and look at a list of words. Don't have a slide just to have a slide. Have a slide to back up a point that you're making. It's like adding an exclamation point to what you're verbally saying. I don't need to read what you're telling me while you're telling it to me. Going back to sort of the interview style of conversation, if it was a job interview or a press interview, if you have a message point to deliver, but the person isn't asking you, the question that's going to feed directly into your ability to deliver that. How do you bridge the question to what you want to say? I'm so glad you asked that because that happens all the time, right? You get the question that you don't want to be asked. Why do you have a 10-year gap on your resume? Um, In an interview, you're representing your company and something not so positive happened at your company and you're on to promote a new product, and you get asked about that. So what you want to do in that situation is you want to hit on the question that was asked, and you want to bridge to something that you actually want to talk about. And then you do what I call sparkle, where you give the details, you take us away from that uncomfortable question, and then you give us all this beautiful other thing to look at, to think about and I'm happy if you wanted to ask me something to show you how to do that um, in your life. In my life? (laughs) Yeah, in your life. You know, whether it was something on TV or with a client. Oh, God. And we can talk about how to bridge that. I can't think of anything right now in my life. Do you have something you can think about in my life? I'm like blank. Do you ever have a negative question about one of the celebrities that you dressed or a very personal question about a celebrity that you're not, you know, someone who's supposed to be talking about their personal life. You're supposed to be talking about how you dress them. Did you ever come across those things? Not in a press interview, but that's a good example anyway. I mean, I think if someone was like, oh, you know, celeb acts, I hear she's really difficult. And let's say she was an ambassador for the brand, right? That I work at. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the kind of thing where you would want to say, you know, actually, so and so and I have worked together in so many capacities. And we had such a great experience working together. And she loves clothes and she loves our brand. And so she wears it with pride. And we're so appreciative to have her as an ambassador for our brand. We have a wonderful relationship. So do you see how you never said anything bad about her? You did 
talk about her in a personal way so you don't look like you're avoiding the question, but you're there to really talk about the brand. So you get your brand name in of whatever that label is that you're working for. You could even go a step further and then talk about, and I can't wait until she wears our clothes next season because we have fabulous jumpsuits, you know, the new colorful fall and she'll be wearing this. And so by that point, they forgot about the fact that they're trying to get you say something negative about X celebrity. And they're now thinking, okay, what's my follow-up question to their fall line? Right. Oh, so well said. You know, Patty taught me something really good back in the day. This is like a PR trick, but it's relevant for this. When we're speaking in sound bites, to just be extremely brief so that your sentence can't be chopped up into multiple parts. Absolutely. So for those of you who don't really know, I think we all hear the word soundbite. What a soundbite really means, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So when you open your mouth to answer a question, whether it's in a press interview, a job interview, or, you know, maybe you gave a speech and there's Q&A, hopefully you've practiced enough that you have a sense of where you're going. Or in my words, I say, a pilot doesn't take off without knowing where they're going to land a plane. You don't open your mouth when you're talking to an audience without having a sense of where am I going to land this sentence. And when you do that and you have a tight soundbite, instead of a long-winded five-minute story, they can't edit you in a way that you'll be horrified when you see it. If it's three thoughts and they're concisely said, you just gave them the sound bite. They don't want to have to take the time to edit it. And they won't if you've already given them a well-edited sentence to begin with. Yeah, that's a really key point because people forget, like when you're giving answers, the longer the answer, the worse you're going to sound Absolutely. in print. I think sometimes people get nervous when they're public speaking and they think, if they over-explain or the more they talk, they'll make it better. But the opposite is actually true. You're talking, you get nervous, you start looking around the room. I'm sorry, but the answer isn't going to appear on the wall. So it's best <laughs> to keep it really concise and focused. And less is more. You know, we always hear that expression, less is more, but it's better to say three impactful, tight things than to tell us everything on the planet because we're not going to remember it all. But what if you are in a situation where you ask a very pointed question and you just don't know the answer? It's fine to say you don't know the answer. What I would never advise you to say is, I'm not going to answer that question. Hmm. Because you're trying to build connection with your audience. And by saying, I'm not going to answer that question, it's like, putting your hand up in a way like stop to the person who's speaking to you and to everybody who's listening, it takes away a level of intimacy and you feel like this person is guarded. They're not going to show me their human side. I'm not really going to get to know them. So you can answer a question without really answering a question using my hit bridge sparkle and appear as though you're answering a question, even though you're not. That is much more likable, appealing than saying, you know what? I'm not going to answer that question. That's off-putting. I agree. 
So what makes a great pitch? How do people who want to get on television or get press interviews, we have so many entrepreneurs, I'm sure, listening, how do they make a great pitch? Well, the biggest mistake people make is they know their business so well. They know their startup so well. They're dying to share so much information. And all they do is think about what do I want to talk about? What do I want to say? What do I want to share? They're asking themselves the wrong question. What they should be saying is, what does this particular audience want to hear? What do they want to know? What are they thinking about? What do they care about? And if you write your pitch that way, thinking first about the audience and less about yourself, you're going to find that hook or that way to captivate them and therefore make that connection and have them interested in your product, your company, whatever it is you're trying to promote. That is the best advice ever because people are always thinking about all the facts and all the deliverables on what they need to get across about their side of it. And I think people don't think about the audience at all. It's true. People really don't think about the audience. And one of the pieces of advice I always give is, if you want to be a great public speaker, you first have to be a great listener. And what I mean by that is, about 10 years, I was training a professional athlete for a very big television interview. And I had my whole, you know, speech with all my presentation 101 tips. I delivered it to him. And then I said, okay, it's time to practice the interviews tomorrow. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I heard what you said. I got this. I don't need to practice. And I said, no, no, uh, I'm here because somebody actually thought you did need to practice. You know, I, <laughs> I, I had to, in the most diplomatic way, tell him he hasn't been great as a public speaker and we needed to practice. And nothing I would say would convince him to practice. So finally, instead of talking like I was doing, I stopped. I was quiet. I thought to myself, okay, how do I connect with this person? How do I speak in a language he's going to understand? So I said to him, would you get onto the field for a big game without practicing? He was like, no, of course not. I said, well, you're not going on television without practicing either. And he finally got my point. In other words, I had to think about who is my audience? How do I connect with him? And how do I reframe this? And that's exactly what you have to do. You have to listen. You have to get the cues from your audience. You have to think about what do they care about, what matters to them, and adjust your presentation so they can hear it. And another tip is sometimes when you're talking to a big crowd, it's kind of intimidating. It's a little overwhelming. What do you do when everybody's like, on their phone, you know, they're not paying attention, they're writing their grocery list. It's so intimidating. You want to find that one person in the audience that seems to really be interested in what you're saying and seems to really care and deliver your speech directly to that person that you feel that you have that connection with. Look at that one person instead of delivering it to a sea of people who may or may not seem like they're paying attention and that will throw you off. Such good advice. What do the best speakers have in common? The best speakers use their strengths, right? 
and they know what's important at the time they're speaking. So let's point to someone that we've all seen speak publicly this year, Joe Biden. He's really not known for being a great public speaker. You know, he's verbose. People don't think of him as a very charismatic person. He's probably more known for his public speaking gaffes than being an eloquent speaker. But his strength is his empathy. In fact, people have called his empathy his superpower. And that was exactly what he needed this year. He tapped into that strength. He knows grief. We all know he shared stories of losing his son and he's had many other losses in his life. And he can connect with other people who have lost loved ones during COVID. And so he utilized his talent that he had because there's other things as a speaker that don't come naturally for him at the time that it was so perfectly appropriate in a way to connect with people. So he used his human side. It's a great example. So know what your strengths are, you know? Maybe you're a really good storyteller and maybe you get nervous when you speak publicly, but when you tell a story, you get animated, you get excited and all the, um, you know, that we all say, um, and we sort of stammer when we speak all those things, maybe go away when you tell a story that's really interesting to you. So know what your strengths are. If you're funny, you know, people think, oh my God, I'm going to use humor. Like that might be great for them, but guess what? I'm not funny. So I don't use humor because I'm not that funny. Maybe I could be self-deprecating sometimes. That's maybe my brand of humor. I'll try that once in a while to connect with an audience, but use whatever strengths you have. And the people who make the biggest mistakes, what are some big mistakes that you see over and over again? I'm sure you have common denominators in the clients that you see. Yeah, the common denominator is there's a lot of people who speak too much. They want to tell you everything in the world. And by trying to convey everything in the world, they convey nothing because nothing is memorable. They are people who never have eye contact, who don't want to smile because they think I'm in a boardroom. This is serious. I don't want to be not taken seriously. But showing your human side doesn't mean that you're not authoritative. You can be human and also be authoritative and very good at your job. I agree. I'm into that. Jillian, this was such great advice. Thank you so much. And we have to end with the same question I ask everyone. How do you want to leave your mark? Oh my gosh. Wow. I worked with so many women and it's so empowering to work with women who maybe are very senior at their company very advanced in their careers. They might be in their 50s, their 60s, even their 70s. And they have become so successful without being able to master the art of communication. And so they live in fear of it. So I would like to leave my mark by saying everybody can become a great public speaker. It isn't an inherent talent. It is something that can be learned. And you really, in order to find your voice and be able to promote yourself or your company or your brand, you owe it to yourself to get comfortable as a public speaker. Yes, I agree. And I am living proof of that because I stuttered my whole life growing up. 
That idea of getting up in front of my class to give a book report was like, I wanted to kill myself. In college, same thing. And to be able to like live through all that and then actually get up on a stage or do a TED Talk or speak at Carnegie Hall, which I did one year for Cosmo. And of course, I've worked with you as well. Like, it's crazy, but it's possible. I remember that about you, that you really had a lot of fear about it. And oh my God, it was torture. I I remember that someone that we both mutually have in common that knew you from college had said to me after they heard you speak, oh my God, I don't know what you did to Eliza, but she used to have a stutter. And I just watched her, I don't know, it was a TED Talk or whatever speech we worked on. And she's like, she's a fabulous public speaker. And when I (laughs) listen to your podcast, as I do, and I hear what a wonderful interviewer you are, it makes me feel so great because it really reinforces the point that anybody can become a great public speaker, no matter where they start. And you're a great example of that. Yeah, no. So, you know, anyone who's listening... I know it can be scary, but you can absolutely nail it. But I think at the end of the day, it's practice. That's it. It's practice. A few tips from someone like me on how to put your best foot forward. It really is a formula like anything else. And once you get the formula and once you practice, you get comfortable. I can tell you about so many clients I had that came to me. Oh my God, I have this speech I have to do. I'm dreading it. I have this television interview. Even some people in tears, I can't do it. I've turned down a million opportunities to public speak. We work together one or two times. And by the end of it, they actually really enjoy speeches and they enjoy going on TV. So it really is something that you can master and it doesn't have to hold you back from opportunities in your personal life and your career. Yeah, I I really do think it's one of the most important skills, even if you're not trying to be on television and you're not, you know, doing press interviews, like being able to get up in a boardroom or present to investors or really even at a team meeting and be able to command attention. There's really nothing more powerful than that. So we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Jillian, for coming on and sharing your wisdom. This is such Great advice, and I can't wait for people to listen and learn. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Eliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Eliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.